What the world needs now is another podcast from a couple of middle-aged fools. So uh, before we get going, I want to talk a little bit about traffic noise. Well, I mean, that is why people come to this podcast. Yeah. Um, we recorded this chat in, uh, in Neil's back garden, which um, is not very far from the Salisbury Ring Road. So it's quite trafficy. Um, sometimes, don't get me wrong, you know, I'm as much a petrol head as the next man. And sometimes <laughs> uh, engine noise can be can be tremendous. Yeah, it can be tremendous. Oh, let's let's sit back from the curb then, Neil. Oh. Ah, live. Is that, is that, is that Cummings again? I think it might have been Cummings, I think, yeah. I'm going to slow down. <laughs> I mean, think this is, he a... is Lewis Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> and so anyway, uh, there was quite a lot of traffic noise in our conversation and through the miracle of um, digital audio technology... You turned it into whale noises. Yeah, some of it is. So you can, you can get rid of some of this stuff, um, but it will always have an effect on what the recording sounds like. And sometimes what was a lorry going past on the ring road sounds a little bit now like the mating call of a blue whale of which that was an impression it was a pretty good one thanks sounded a little bit like dory speaking whale oh right okay yeah good. well i mean that's where i learnt my whale yeah to be honest i think uh, she's the, she's the go-to whale <laughs> teacher but it's, it's it's perfectly listenable too yeah with the uh, with the traffic removed yeah certainly all good fun learning as well Yes, all part of the creative process, Simon. We're learning as we go along. And mm-hmm. if that means turning traffic into whale noises, then so be it. Yep, it's all, it's all part of the fun. Yeah, exactly. Hello, and welcome to Something Out of Nothing, a podcast exploring the nature of creativity. Attempting to discover what, if anything, creatives in different fields have in common. To do this, two friends with inquiring minds and a propensity to wang on at each other about creative stuff decided the best way would be to talk to other creatives and see if we can tease their secrets from them. He's Simon White, a writer and advertising type. And he is Neil Smith, an illustrator and graphic designer. So this time of year, Simon, normally you'd be packing up your, packing up your rucksack, preparing your tie-dye T-shirt... Yes, I would be tie-dyeing... Counting, and, and counting um, your herbal cigarettes in preparation for a trip to Stonehenge tomorrow. I'd be, I'd be tr- trying to remember where I'd put my dreadlocks wig... Yes. Uh, in preparation for my full hippification. <laughs> tomorrow yeah, morning. Right. What is it? It's in the next few days, isn't it? Solstice. Tomorrow, summer solstice. Wow. Which normally, for the residents of Salisbury... Although means by the time you hear this, it probably won't be tomorrow. That's true. But uh, normally it means a high density of hippies. Yeah. Uh, sort of, um, you know, sleeping, sleeping around... You know, my local park, for example, will normally have lots of tents in it. Really? Yeah. Is, um, I'm curious to know, is hippie a thing that's okay to say? Yeah, I don't know. Is, are we gonna, is that allowed? Are people going to get offended? Hippie. You're all right with it, aren't you? I can, I can sense I think it. I am all right <laughs> with it. But maybe we need to retrospectively check. Because I'm a child of the 80s, when I hear hippie, in yeah. my mind's eye, I see Neil from the young ones. Yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah. I think of... Um, are those the kind of guys camping in your back garden? No, not really. I think, it makes me think of the um, mid-90s, pop will eat itself, uh, <laughs> um, kind of wonder stuff. Yeah. kind of vibe where all oh, the levelers yeah. you know people with maybe maybe dye marijuana t-shirts yeah exactly i like the pope the pope smokes dope yeah that stuff you know that kind those kind of guys yeah yep 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 and are those the guys who are queuing up at stonehenge to 
watch the sunrise. Exactly. Okay. That, that is my. May, am I, I might be generalising fairly massively. And they may but not I'm be still, this year, I suppose. I'm right? still bitter, Simon, because a couple of years ago I missed a train to London because of the sheer density of hippies at Salisbury British Rail. Hippie density. Yeah. What is? Oh, that sounds like that ought to have a word. Yeah, the I know. D- density hippies, of hippies. Density. Well, or maybe a scale. <laughs> D- dense hippies. <laughs> a cloud <laughs> scale. <laughs> 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 anyway, it's fine. Uh, live and let live, I say. Absolutely. Hi- hippies welcome. So this year that may well not be happening on the basis of, uh, you know, global pandemics and stuff. Yeah, that's very true. Or will they just ignore that? Yeah. The druids don't stop for the pandemic, so do they? Um, I, I mean, to know. There's probably, a, there's probably a druid WhatsApp group. I'd imagine it's uh, <laughs> pretty hectic at this time of year. Yeah, man. Wouldn't you think? I don't know. It's, are druids technology They'd be embracers? On Maybe they don't need technology. Who knows? Everyone needs WhatsApp, just, surely. Everyone just, needs a WhatsApp group. Yeah, I reckon there's a Druid's WhatsApp group and they'll be right. and they'll be texting like crazy. I kind of like to listen in on it. I don't want to be part of it. I don't want to be that, oh, Simon's left the group. <laughs> <laughs> don't want to be that oh. Druid. Oh. I think things have got a bit too Druidy for Simon. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Yeah, anyway. Other things that won't be happening, Simon, are middle-class dinner parties, which is where I met Dr Phil. Ah, oh, good segue. Thanks. That was slick. Mm. <laughs> um, so I met I met Dr. Phil at a dinner party a couple of years ago, um, and we quickly got chatting about film, and it became very apparent to me how wildly out of my depth I was right. uh, when Phil started talking about films the way he does. Yeah, so you, you reach for the armbands quite quickly. <laughs> yeah, totally. Re- I think, I don't know, it was the first time I'd met him, so yeah. I think I'd... And I'd had a glass of wine, so I think I was... I, I love film! Oh, brilliant! No, I wasn't, actually. Okay. I was I was trying not to let on that I didn't have a clue what he was on about. Oh, the other way. Yeah, right. I, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but th- this chat we have, you know, he's, he is an academic. And he is. He's a smart guy. Um, yes, very definitely. And he's but, very articulate about yeah, it, but, and he thinks about it very deeply. Definitely, but super, you know, it's just, that's not to say it's not a super accessible chat, because, you know, he's, he's talking to you and I about how, how scripts work, mm. how story works in films, uh, and uh, he really knows his onions. Well, the, sort of, the chat is kind of divided into two bits, really, where the first part of it we talk about his early career as a monster maker. Yes, from monster maker to... Cool in yeah, incredible. Right. And these days he lectures in screenwriting, and has a has a it's a PhD in screenwriting, I think. Yes. But the first uh, ten minutes or so is us talking about him basically starting his film career in his bedroom, painting yeah. painting figures. Exactly. So he kind of taught himself to make 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 body parts, make yeah, monsters. Which is a really good little. Um, I think it's a good good primer for the you know the sort of self starting that is necessary if you want to work in film and media generally. You need to you know get off your ass and do it and show people you've done it and they probably give you a job rather than you go and knock on the door and ask it it doesn't yeah. quite work that way does it you think, yeah that's true you know demonstrate you can do it it's uh yeah it's great and he goes on to work you know on steven spielberg movies yeah you know, he worked he, cool. you know he was making body parts on saving private ryan which yeah. is uh which is incredible also neil he was also making bits for sean of the dead which i'm slightly <laughs> missed that you didn't tell me about because you knew about yeah. this before our conversation uh, i didn't find out until after I so know, i definitely it's terrible, it? regrets so you know my favorite zombie film yeah uh we've got phil who actually worked on it and somehow didn't i didn't even mention i failed to mention it pretty disgusting but yeah. we had plenty of other things to talk about he's very articulate in these he thinks and speaks very um academically about his yeah. subject he's yeah a, i love it you know, a real forensic sort of approach to film and and script writing especially 
which is fascinating stuff. I, I get off on all that nerdery. Yeah, I'm not sure I completely kept up for most of it. Uh, there, there were there were times when I where I where I wished I could pause and just check my phone to try and find <laughs> out what exactly. Can I Google that? <laughs> can I Google that quickly? Yeah. Uh, what, what, you can. So for listening to this, you can. Yeah, just you can it. just pause it and yeah. and Google what temporal means. We, I, I mean, I have since found out. Do you want to know, Simon? It's about. It's about time, isn't it? It is. Ugh, it is about time. How do you know that? Uh, yeah. So Phil, we're talking about film and music, and and Dr. Phil says, "Oh, film and music. Are, of course, they're linked. They're both temporal art forms." Yeah. Which is like, oh, oh, hang on. That's a great a thing. You know, I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but it's absolutely true. Yeah. So temporal uh, from temporalis, the Latin temporalis, Simon, meaning time, temporary. Mm-hmm. Uh, limited by time, nice. and of course he's right. But at the time, I, I think I just looked blankly at him. Right, we do. There's a lot of um, uh, cause for blank faces as well. There's a lot of mention of the um, the heavy hitters of the script writing guru set, most of whom are American. But some it started with Aristotle back in the day. Oh yeah, you know how to how to write. Um, convincing compelling drama yeah and there's basically every year somebody else comes out with loads of stuff yeah so we go from aristotle all the way through to michelle gondry and charlie kaufman nice yeah it's a it's a it's an extremely identifiable through line yes that's right running the gamut simon (laughs) something out of nothing running the gamut from aristotle to michelle gondry absolutely we should also say that there might be speaking of michelle gondry there are a little bit of a plot spoiler situation for eternal sunshine of the spotless mind if you've not seen it Maybe go and watch it first. Oh, if you haven't seen it, you know, just go I mean, and see well, it because yeah. it's great. Because it's much better than this, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. It's a tremendous film. Yeah. Um, yeah stop listening to this podcast. And go and watch Just Eternal go do Sunshine. something better, like, you know, watch Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. You're so right, Simon. You're Absolutely. So right. It's a proper bit of art, that is. And there's also spoilers for 500 Days of Summer, which is a fun film, but not quite in the same realms. One of Mark Kermode's favourite rom-coms. Is it? Yes. Oh, OK. I mean, it's good, but it's not. There's no Eternal Sunshine, is it? Yeah. And there's also probably plot spoilers for the Star Wars sequels, if anyone cares about that. Yeah. I mean, also we get into. If you haven't seen to, them, though, you probably don't want to. No, it's true. We also get into how to write a script. If you want to know how to write a film script, this is the right podcast for you. Oh, I like that. That's that's marketing. That is. Look what you've done there. I know. Aggressive. Mm. So this is Dr. Phil Matthews. Tell me about monster making. Uh, okay, monster making. Uh, I suppose that um, I was always into Ray Harryhausen films and, and all that kind of side of things. And I remember, I think my dad took me first when I was about eight years old to go and watch uh, Jason and the Argonauts at the local cinema. Yeah. And it was heavy fog that day. I'm going waxing lyrical here. No, I like and, uh, it. But basically, it took film. us Paints it took us about an hour and a half to do a three mile drive to get to the cinema to watch this film, and then about the same on the way back. So it made this a real event and something that I really, you know, uh, remembered. Amazing. Um, but yeah, I've always been into those kind of things. And then I suppose when I got to about age 11, 12, um, I started to, at the local model shop, they had um, Citadel miniatures, all the Warhammer miniatures. Yeah, yeah, the little lead ones. Yeah, yeah. And so I bought some of those and started to get into painting those. And then there was at UMIST at Manchester University, a, a, it was called the Dragon Meet. And you could go there and they'd have all the Games Workshop people sculpting all the little miniatures and a painting competition. And I won it with something I painted. It was about the third thing I painted. And then from that, I was, I was told, come into Games Workshop in Manchester and see if you want to start painting for us full time. So, so you got a job painting miniatures at age twelve. What a laugh! To sixteen, so every week I would go in 
and they'd say, here's all the latest miniatures that aren't going to be out till next month. Check them all out. And like, oh, look at those. That's like a dream ticket. Here for they are. Old. Here they are. Take whatever you want. Here's all paints and stuff for free. And you get paid £2 a figure and then like £5 for an ogre and £15 for a dragon. So as a kind of virginal, you know, kind of naive, reclusive <laughs> 12-year-old, I absolutely crank these things out. Phil, so, were you 12 or were you 17? <laughs> uh, I was 12. And so, um, so I was painting at the kind of height of my uh, stature at, for Games Workshop in Sheffield, Manchester and Liverpool. Um, that is living the twelve-year-old dream. And I was I was raking in about eighty to ninety pounds uh, a month as my kind of pocket money earnings. So all that was then spent on going to Manchester and going to getting Fangoria, Gorezone, all the kind of effects and makeup and monstery magazines and books. So like my library was massive even at that age. And um, and then I was obviously interested in moving from painting those miniatures to special effects and monster yeah, making yeah. and all that. Kind Incredible. Of side of so you were a kind of a child prodigy. Well, we're all, well, I don't think I'm, <laughs> I think there's, we're all known as bedroom boys in the industry because basically when, when we started working in film and TV, everyone was about 17 to 23 right. and everyone was a kind of on the spectrum, uh, reclusive, <laughs> uh, kind of virginal, you know, um, socially, kind of social misfit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, but we all absolutely soaked up this stuff and we knew our stuff. So we, so, you know, we were getting all the work. And really kind of, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a real community and everyone was kind of trying to get, you know, working on whatever you, you could. So I started working on a, a, f a local feature film called White Angel at my local A-level college. I heard this director come in and say, oh, I'm making my second feature film. There's a guy called Chris Jones, who's quite well known now in the kind of filmmaking guide circle because he writes, he wrote a book called The Guerrilla Film Filmmaker's uh, Guidebook. And he also runs the... London Screenwriters Festival. So he's quite well known and he was quite a kind of um, proactive in making his own. He, he made a feature film at age 18 or 18, 19 uh, with Harrison Ford's brother, Terence Ford, wow. as the star. <laughs> <laughs> it was all that kind of, you know. Terry really, Ford. You no, know, but good. But really, he, was, he was very, very um, industrious and very yeah. proactive. Yeah. And so I bumped into him and said, Oh, I'm interested in special effects and stuff. And I've made some rubber monsters at this stage uh, for my A level art. Anyway, he said, you're right, you're hired. So then, like... Hang on, hang on, hang on. So for your, <laughs> so you just made some rubber monsters. Yeah. I mean, how, how where have you where have you gone to get all the stuff? Because that's not a natural, that's not necessarily a natural leap from well, painting little lead miniatures there's, there's to a, creating yeah, monsters out there, of... There was a few books, I think, that, that were kind of seminal at the time. There was uh. one that was like makeup. Um, remember at school, you used to get those kind of puffing school club book clubs that you could go look through and you pick yeah. a book that you can order and one of them was on makeup effects and everyone in the industry had this book it was like a really very simple Ooh, do you remember what it's called uh makeup and disguises makeup and disguises. And it's, it's just a kind of short a5 book but it's really really informative yeah. and then there's grand illusion which was the tom savini or as he's known in the industry tom Sofoni who did all the effects for all the George A. Romero films. So all, and he, his book, Grand Illusions, basically was a step-by-step -step how to do a severed head, how to do a hand, how to do blood, oh, everything. And, he, and he's referenced in everything. So he's, he's in like Dust Till Dawn. He's, he's in lots of other films. Oh, yeah. uh, and he, you, you'll see him in lots of things. There's loads of in-joke nods to Tom Savini. Okay. Um, Italian guy. And um, so oh, amazing. So, but you're basically, you teach, you're teaching yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Did you not have anything better to do well i was i was you know as I, said, I, I think i think i think i have said i was a, I, know, but, I, but, I, I was an awkward uh 
um, virginal teen. I think I've mentioned that quite a few times. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you laid the ground rules. Let's roles, move on from that. that but yeah, so I think that, 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 you know, I think that that was a safe, safe territory for me. Girls were, were terrifying to me. Monsters were much more yeah. of, of a known <laughs> quantity. Yeah, a known yeah, no quantity. Understand. So self-taught monster making. Yeah. Um, I think that the real break for me was was bumping into Chris Jones and him seeing my A-level art um, exhibition and saying, right, you're hired. And then a couple of months later, he came back to my mum and dad said, look, I'm not some psychopath here. This is all legitimate. Would you be happy for your son to come down to London for two months to work on this low budget film? So, which is what I did. And uh, it was really great. And I um, had loads of fun there, Made met more people. And then every summer while I was doing my degree, which is fine art, um, I went and worked at Shepperton Studios or, or Elstree and worked on whatever the big movie was that, that each summer, like Judge Dredd or Madness of King George or whatever it was. And Sylvester doing, Stallone. Judge yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and did you meet Sylvester Stallone? I I was in pl- close proximity. I didn't really meet him. I'm no. a big fan of Stallone. I think his screenplays are great. And um, do Rocky th- Rocky Two is a classic. Yeah. And um, I, yeah, I've, I've, but anyway, it was yeah. There was a so I worked on on those, and that kind of built up my um, my expertise and my kind of experience, I suppose. Um, yeah, but making it home is what everyone does. You, you, you're not going to get into the industry without being quite proactive, I suppose. Is that true now? Do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think that with anything you do, I mean, I, as I say, I teach screenwriting now, yeah. and that- that's all about the same things about being proactive and knocking on doors. So the um. The segue into screenwriting is—is is that was that a natural thing, or was that? It sounds like there might be a bit of a, a story between making monsters and writing scripts. Yeah, I think that it's interesting how kind of within an industry that is freelance, that you you can't just sit back and rely on one source of income or one kind of stream to be consistent and you know uh, fruitful for you. And I think that I'd always been interested in directing, and I had been making short films quite in, in my kind of late teens. I bought myself a Super 8 camera. Um, and was into uh, stop motion animation, the whole um, Ray Harryhausen thing. Mm. I actually met Ray Harryhausen at, at a film oh, wow. festival, and that was like, <gasps> and I showed him some of my models, and you know, that was really. What did he think? Well, he's like, yeah. no, it was, it was, it was very complimentary, <laughs> very supportive, <laughs> you know, <so laughs> really what nice. A but <laughs> well, he was, he was, I think he was in his like, he was about 110 then. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, he's been know. dead for quite a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I think that I realised that with with stop motion animation, it's mind-numbingly tedious work and I've got ADHD and so I I can't sit still for very long and that was not really not for me it does look um incredibly intensive so was that the kind of thing you were doing you like using uh, I had a go I I made a stop-motion werewolf about this size Mm -hmm. um and then of course you get that horrible kind of drag that if you notice on all the Ray Harryhausen films with anything that's got any fur on it You've got that kind of ruffle where the skin is yeah. being, you know, the fur is being moved by the, by the hands. And that was annoying as well uh, to me because kind of my aesthetic was quite kind of uh, oh, There's something recently. There was a massive breakthrough, wasn't there, in fur yeah. design oh, for oh, animation. Well, and it's computer it's animation. Yeah. 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 yeah, probably, yeah. I don't it was Monsters Inc, I think. Was it Monsters yeah. I, yeah. I wanted yeah. to say Monsters Inc. It was Sully's fur, which where they had like, oh, I don't know, was was like it? three million moving parts on yeah, the fur. So it's stupid. There's a really great... Algorithm control, isn't it? Yeah, it's a really good Pixar... Um, book all about kind of the creativity at Pixar. Is it Andrew, right. Andrew Stanton, I think? Stanton was the, yeah, he's a director. Yeah, oh, yeah. And, and that's just full of really 
fascinating stuff on how to make films. Loads, right. of, loads of, I don't know, I loved all that stuff. Yes, good uh, link as well. The, uh, the the sushi restaurant in Monsters Inc. is called Harryhausen's. Is it? As oh, a okay. tribute. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Pure animation but, geekery. Yeah, <laughs> but but though for the non-film, you know, I mean, I'm you know I'm sat here talking to a couple of writers. I've never written anything. I've written anything significant. Uh, since I was at school. You've written uh, some beautiful emails now. Yeah, thanks, mate. <laughs> um, yeah, just the stuff about, I mean, writing a film or, or being involved in film just seems like a nightmare. I'm super interested mm. in how films get made. I've always loved films, always been fascinated by how they actually get made because it seems like such a sort of terrifying, colossal undertaking. And this Pixar book was really good at kind of at, at kind of myth-busting. Right, okay. This, this, you know, it failed quickly. That was one of their things. You know, we, we accept that if we just crack on, make some mistakes nice and early, at least we'll get some momentum yeah. going. Yeah. And they talk about it being like an archaeological dig. You know, you're kind of, re- the film is revealing itself mm. with every, you know, with every day. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that's a, that's great. That's a great metaphor for, for making a... Yeah. I suppose it depends on on the culture of whoever the, the filmmakers are and what the kind of you know the ethos of the production company is and how they're kind of moving forward. Because some productions work in that way and others are an absolute you know nightmare. Really? And you, yeah, it just depends on. So does that idea of failing quickly and archaeological digs and all that that sounds like a good way to you? Does uh, well, it? It, well, it does. Yeah, because you, you it's it's collaborative and it really is kind of there's a sense of of everyone kind of aspiring and building towards a, you know a shared goal. Whereas I think there's a lot of and also the failure is okay. Yeah, yeah. Whereas a lot of, a lot of projects, you, you, you know, it's it's you know you, you're going in and just you know killing yourself laughing. It's 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 a it's a guaranteed failure. Oh, like just what? waiting to happen. Like oh, there's, there's loads of stuff like that. Um, I think there was a lot of that on Dread. Um, stuff, well, okay. So while working on it, you think this is not going to work. Well, I just think that there was a lot of clashes going on in terms of how it was working. I think that it was because it was a Danny Cannon was uh, young. And I think at that time there was there was a feeling that um, I think that that um, Stallone would, would pick directors that were maybe early in their career, so he could then have a bit more say and so sway. He could be the main man. Yeah. So, so I think that there was there was issues there. I mean, some beautiful work done in that. I mean, there was work by Chris, now Chris Cunningham, but was uh, was known as Chris Halls at the time, and Paul Catling, and their work, artwork was absolutely beautiful. And they kind of come from. Uh, 2000 AD as illustrators mm. and some really beautiful work but I think that there was a lot of kind of issues on that film in terms of the the, the production that, that you know but you get it on you get it on lots of lots of films where egos dynamics yeah. all the rest of it and you just kind of you know there must yeah. be so other examples as well though there's so many examples of when you don't have a clue if that you're working on what's going to be a Absolute gem. Yeah, I think that you know yeah. everyone's doing their individual. Bits. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's that. I mean, I remember. I remember working on. I worked on a film called Quills, which was about the Marquis de Sade with. Uh, yeah, I remember that. Wacken uh, Phoenix and Rush. Rush, yeah, and um, and everybody on that was saying, "Ah, oh, the script is incredible. The script is amazing. The script is incredible." And it was just at the time that I was doing my MA, in, you know, taking an MA in screenwriting, so I got hold of this script and read it through, and it was beautifully written as a piece of prose but it didn't really do very well it really kind of didn't do very well when it when it kind of came out and i don't think it was a good film but i think that if you read the script and i think that that's always stuck with me you thought, okay you can get seduced by beautiful prose yeah that actually is not really sc- not screenwriting you know it's a funny thing that um 
theatre, you can you have revivals. People make the same play over yeah. and over again. It doesn't really happen in film so much. You do it, it does occasionally happen, of course. You yeah. get remakes and stuff. Yeah, uh, but it's not treated in the same way. Where you've mm. got this: here's the text, interpret it the way you like. It doesn't yeah. happen. Um, but it is really interesting to think of. It's a game I occasionally play, where uh, you, you know watch an old movie and think, oh, how would this be if it was made by such and such mm. with the, you know whoever you like, Dreamcasting, yeah, different director. Watched Point Break again the other day, which is right. a film I love. Yeah, but it is undeniably ludicrous <laughs> and uh, and uh, you, if you, you can imagine that being remade with you know because Keanu at that time Hang was on. pretty has Keanu ever made a film that could not be described as ludicrous <laughs> no it's a different kind of ludicrous now though his new stuff like the John Wick stuff is ludicrous but in a really cool way I love yeah. Keanu Speed's one of oh, my yeah, yeah, sure. secret faves who doesn't love Keanu yeah. but I mean he, he is he was still in Bill and Ted phase in that film. Yeah. Um, and it, and it's, it lends it a ludicrousness, which is probably good for it. The suspension of disbelief is easier because it's quite silly. But you could make it seriously because that screenplay is fantastic. Right, okay. I think they're doing a lot more of that. If you look at Disney, they're just kind of basically making everything live action of their the old kind of catalogue with oh, Iron yeah. King and everything. And Lady and the Tramp is the latest one. So I think that they, they're they doing a lot more of that. And I think as, as cinema kind of goes on, I think that I think they're going to remake Star Wars Episode Four. Do you definitely, think? Definitely. Ugh. Definitely. There's only Jedi that just about holds up now as, as a piece that you can watch as in terms of pacing of, of a current kind of film. All the others slightly kind of like slow Lag pedestrian. Bit, yeah, bit yeah. Plodding. Yeah. Do you still feel that? I, mean, I, I think I'm probably incapable of being objective about Star Wars because it was so, it's so much a part of, like me being a kid mm. that I don't think I can sort of separate how good a film it is from what it means I'm exactly to me. the same I love Star Wars I'm not I'm not a super film nerd uh, I love Star Wars and I, I basically forgive the most things because it's Star Wars and it takes me back to being a little boy yeah yeah but with my grown up head on yeah Last Jedi is wretched. Well, the, I think most of the, the the latest ones are pretty wretched and um, I mean I love I, Force Awakens though mm. Oh, I, I like the middle I one. Love Rogue One. I'm a, I'm a, mm, I'm a, um, I like Rogue One. Yeah, yeah, Rogue One was great. Yeah, but the, I mean, I we got to be careful not to do this forever. We but can edit the, this, Simon. Sure. <laughs> and the, you know, the when was it Tony Gilroy came in and sort of yeah, redid yeah. Rogue One from halfway through because I obviously didn't like um, Edward's first cut. I want to see that film, his first cut, because that the trailer, the original trailer before Gilroy came in, mm. is a, for a different film. Yeah, it's totally different. But I don't think they'll release that, will they? I no. just don't see. Well, that. not until he's got no chance of ever working with Disney again. No, I, no, and he's—I I don't. What's he done since? Anything? Did he do Godzilla? Was that after or I think before? It was before, wasn't it? Right. Okay. So I haven't heard him do anything, has he? He got a cameo in the Last Jedi. He did. That was it. Um, in the in the trench. Yeah. Yeah. Phil, if they offered you a well, there was there was I was I I interviewed for Phantom Menace uh, for as a job at the same time as I interviewed for Saving Private Ryan, and I took Ryan because we knew who was doing the effects on Phantom Menace and, and they weren't, weren't... Honestly, it. was it like what, that? Well, so it wasn't simply a case that the other one was Steven Spielberg? Well, that obviously had a massive... <laughs> that would swing uh, it for me. That has yeah. a, yeah, a massive... Gotta have some sort of and also, I, <laughs> yeah. I did know the people on Saving Private Ryan, so Neil Gorton and Steve Painter were really, really you know, good friends and, and, and trusted in terms of really good work. And um, What did you do on Ryan? Uh, just bo bo we did bodies and bodies parts and more body <laughs> there parts. There are plenty. Just That's lots brilliant. and lots of body parts and you know gags. Um, yeah. So it was, did it was you awesome. know? Yeah. Fun yeah. Salisbury fact. Did you know that on the Churchfield estate in Salisbury, quite close to the dump, uh, there is a man that makes fake blood for Hollywood. 
Is there? Yeah. That's his whole business, and he ships it to LA in sort of, you know... What is it, like corn syrup or whatever? I don't know, but he's, apparently he's a world-regarded expert in fake blood well, right, production. Well, I remember on, so, on uh, Ryan, because the, the, the cinematographer, they were shooting on some particular stock, so they couldn't have uh, blood that looked fine to the, to the human eye. It had to be sensitive to the stock they were using, so it was slightly more orangey. Ooh, um, really? Um, I used to have a little tub of that. Like, <laughs> um, yeah, I remember, I remember. Maybe I'm wrong, but I remember some big discussion about the blood not being generic blood. It had to be particular special because, Ryan blood. Yeah, yeah, Spielberg blood. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I'm super interested in is the uh, idea of like formula in films. Uh, like, I really like this idea of creativity or originality being taking two things that already exist. And putting them together mm-hmm. to make something new yeah so works in films all the time mm. but, uh, although simon slightly disputes this because we were talking about it the other day but like star wars broadly it's a western in space yeah alien broadly it's jaws in space yeah. um and i wonder how as like, like somebody who teaches writing scripts mm-hmm. does that stuff ring true do you do you get lots of students furiously jamming together genres uh, to create something that they consider to be original, and can you see right through it? I think that that uh, you can see right through it, but I think it's it's how most of the kind of big blockbusters work, and I think there's nothing wrong with it. I think that 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 kind of juxtaposition of different genres is very much how, if you look at Hollywood, how it operates. They go, okay, we've got a rom com here. Have we had a rom com superhero film? Oh yeah, um, my super ex girlfriend or my super ex with Uma Thurman that didn't do very well. But they're always looking for combinations of genres that they can mash together in order to make something fresh or new. And you you see this all the time with like you know the sci fi films that are just kind of the quest, then they kind of maybe move into the western, then they move into horror, then they move into romance, and there was a whole slew in the early two thousands of romantic sci-fi films. And I think that, that that quite mechanistic approach is really important. I think that, I mean, we look at lots of different forms and narrative forms and different types of approaches. But yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, that's, that, is, that is part of the approach. And I think there's, and there's a lot of um, mileage in that. I remember a student a few years ago came up with a, pitched an idea called Monster Sesh. And it was basically a, a bunch of kids go to Ibiza for a, a monster sesh mm. and this monster attacks the beach and but they're all on the lash it's beer fueled monster mo- monster bee moving it was like what's not to like and I love everyone it. I everyone say, everyone who, who he picks this to the room Godzilla. and everyone was like yeah 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 we want to go watch this it's like instant and that basically Ibiza monster movie put it together yeah, great. I love it. And that's also one of those things where the where the where the title is a, is a sell. Yeah, exactly. Away. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. A bit like snakes on a plane. Exactly. Let's talk about that, those bits. How how do you presumably this is a big part of your job? The structure and the you know screenwriting gurus and the sort of the wisdom that's been handed down from like Aristotle through McKee and all that kind of stuff. Where do you stand on those guys? Uh, well, I did a PhD in kind of analyzing and pulling apart some of that stuff and critiquing it and i think that definitely asking the right guy so in yeah. in lots of ways you you we kind can of you explain it in a way that i will understand it though okay so it's i think it's a lot of it's to do with kind of western culture and if you look at a, a lot of american focused manuals how to write you know the vogler mckee the seager the aronson selbo everybody it's all from campbell M- murdoch um that all then comes from young which is is a broadly a kind of um, a faith-based 
um, ideology. It's it's spiritual, it's spirituality, it's interconnectedness, it's Jungian. So it's about, you know, it's the force. Yeah. We, we have this collective unconsciousness. There are archetypes that are transcendental to the entire you know, civilization and, and humanity, and and it's very faith-based narrative. Yes, certainly. Um, Joseph Campbell, which famously um, George Lucas sort of based Star Wars on. Well, apparently he didn't. That apparently that was a post. Oh, is that post-rationalized? Yeah, because I was talking. Really? I was, was going to write a paper with another nerdy Star Wars fan, and we were writing something about Lee Brackett, who wrote the original draft of Empire Strikes Back, and the fact that that was dismissed. And if you read it. Uh, J.J. Um, Abrams has been cribbing stuff from that original 1980s version right. because it, it's got the force Skyping going on in right. that has it? in that draft yeah and, um, force Skyping I like that yeah yeah I've not, I've not heard that expression before <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know. <laughs> but it is isn't it you know so it wasn't he didn't Lucas didn't base it on Campbell no, I thought apparently he said he had no, apparently he, it was all post-rationalised afterwards right and the right. whole story of him flying him out and showing him Star Wars because it's beat for beat isn't it the yeah. sort of like, like the wisdom giver and all that yeah, sort of nonsense yeah. um, who's young uh, Carl Gustav. Oh, Young. Young. Oh, sorry. Jung. This is my Wigan accent. Apologies, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Young. Yeah. So, psychotherapist, psychoanalyst. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, Freud can have written through a list of, I think, film writing Bibles. Yeah, manuals. Yeah, those kind of yeah. yeah. screenwriting manuals. Yeah. But on that, just on that point, then. So yeah. the so the Jungian a young. Jung, yeah. Jungian. Jungian approach. Yeah. yeah. Is, no right is much more faith based, kind of spiritual. I'd say not. Not quite, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of spiritual, whereas a, a kind of more Freudian approach is much more about the individual and about self-determination and yeah. about uh, characters within a story uh, manifesting their own desires and, and yeah. their own motivations. Whereas well, a lot of the Jungian approaches is things will just happen. Yeah, right. Serendipity. So could you say that the, you know, the, sort that, of the, the character arc basis is more Freudian? And their plot base is more Jungian. That's what I argued in my PhD. Is it? And so my, oh, my, 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 PhD, like so my PhD. That is a big tick so for my, you, so student PhD, <laughs> yeah, So my PhD was about the character arc. And the, and the character arc is a kind of approach that is not very well documented or even really fully articulated but until my PhD went in there <laughs> and did that. Um, Professor Phil, it's really coming out now. <laughs> uh, and, um, but, I mean, it, it's there in operation, but it's not, it's not still, not been fully articulated. So it, it's evident. It's in, it's in evidence. You can see it yeah. happen. It's talked about a lot, isn't it? The arcs. Yeah. yeah. But it's, it's not fully defined. If you read some of the man, it's, it's quite kind of wishy-washy and, and vague and they don't really articulate it. So that was my interest because originally my PhD, just quickly to frame the context of it, was that, I wanted to see what the boundaries are were of that form because it, it does feel very formulaic. So if I watch a film an hour in, I can tell you how it's going to end. Yeah. If it's using an arc. Yeah, yeah. Straight away. Character arc. Yeah. Yeah. So you go, oh, and he's going to die or, you know, so. Or there's redemption or. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I thought that's a bit kind of limiting if I'm going to start writing lots of screenplays. And so I looked into what was the original definition of that and there is none. So then. Okay. That's where my PhD kind of took off. You from talk, I mean, they always talk about arcs, and it's it's very interesting to see, you know, how a character is changed by what happens to them during the course of the story. But um, I, I'm a bit of a sucker for these manual things. Obviously, I haven't looked at it in anything like the depth you have, but things like McKee and you know the, the classics, they all talk about a structure in terms of the like the three or five acts, 
and you know what happens at each point in order to push the story forward and it doesn't have anything to do with character usually no they're, they're plot points that their characters obviously involved yeah but it's not it's not driven by them yeah. in the same way that an art could be no and i think that the other thing about those manuals is is they are quite compelling i remember you know voraciously kind of absorbing all of them they're very kind of uh evangelical and kind of you know they pontificate on this is how you do it and you must do it this way and this is the exemplar and you know and, and i think it's very easy for students to kind of get locked into that and, and sucked into the this is it because yeah. writing a screenplay is a big chunk of time and commitment you know yeah. and it's, it's a massive investment in terms of just intellectually trying to grapple with this thing so having a template is really useful so we don't really promote any of them we say read them let's have a chat about them yeah that's and, exactly the way i felt, felt about when when we had a <laughs> when we had a baby there's like, yeah. we need a manual. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we need and a then manual. you suddenly go and look at it. Oh my <laughs> God, there's loads. <laughs> there's loads of manuals. We read them all. They're all wildly contradictory. Letter, it'll all go to hell yeah, yeah. Yeah. pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. And actually, you've just got to trust your instincts. And that's a lot like making a film. Oh, well, that's, that's mad. Oh, uh, that's the, not, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Gee, the, the name Gina Ford has just come back to me. Yeah, I know. Oh, crikey. Neil and Simon, Neil and Simon, what a pair of twats. Riding on the coattails of people who have talent They are not afraid to look like a desperate double act Neil and Simon, Neil and Simon, what a pair of twats It's very appealing to say there is one story So, so that the whole idea of the monomyth, the quest it, that, that one you know, overarching story is everywhere Is, is very kind of um, reassuring and also appealing to lots of you know new writers who just want to kind yeah, of that's true. you know so for me i my, my understanding was that there are seven stories that can basically be whittled down into two which is a man goes on an adventure or a stranger comes to town no is that bollocks i would argue i would th those are two stories yes but i don't think i there's dennis johnson who's an irish playwright he talks about seven i think or eight and then Phil Parker, who was my supervisor for my PhD and, and the, who set up the screenwriting um, course in, in London at LCC and LCP, he talked about 10 stories. And, and one of them is the wanderer, the, basically the catalytic character who comes into a place, affects change and buggers off. So they ah, are the catalyst. Right. You have the... The Jimbo. The, the, yeah, the quest, which is, you know, someone goes off, gets a sword of Cron, comes back. You have this, the Circe, the spider and the fly, which is the manipulation, attempt at manipulating somebody. The My Fair Lady doesn't work, does work. Uh, but it's more about do you manipulate somebody? So it's a kind of moral play on yourself. Then you have what you actually have is three love stories. You have the Tristan and his old love triangle. So you've got a love triangle to Bridget Jones. Which one do I go for? Mr. Yeah. Floppy Hair, Mr. Floppy yeah. Jumper. Yeah. The Romeo and Juliet. We love each other. Just keep you apart. And then you have the other romance, which is the kind of Cinderella, which is look at me, I'm a value, value me. It's the, the story of validation, which is every sport movie going. So, you know, Rocky, <laughs> I am good. I'll yeah. box you and look, I've won. So, so <laughs> and, and everyone kind of has that story in some form because everything that's set up in society is about validation, isn't it? Right. You know, I've got my GCSEs, I've got my A-levels, I've got my degree, I've got my whatever. I've got yep, my new yep, coat, yep. I've got my Star Wars t-shirt on, I've got my... You know, my, my Got a podcast. Yeah, my, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so 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 all that. So those are another stories. There's, there's a few more. I can't think of off the top of my head now. No, fair um, enough. We, but, but yeah, but you can so, get, presumably you can get bogged down in all of these manuals and all this instruction. 
and all of this reassuring uh, there are seven stories you just need to know which one which one of them suits your idea where does the creativity where does the it's no different to being an illustrator an artist or any type of creative isn't it you've got an absolute wealth or dirge of however you want to see it of examples that you can kind of look at be inspired by be you know kind of encouraged or or you know reference in whatever you're doing and you can either ignore it you could either be slavishly kind of uh you know you replicate it or, or overly kind of uh precious about it or you just get on and do whatever you're doing so you're always going to have those references reference points and the narrative forms and the story forms are no different to figurative representational art or whatever it is in in yeah. whatever of your creative sphere, I suppose. Yeah. So when you're when you're teaching screenwriting, do you is there a way that you would you, you advise people to go about it? Is so for example, would it be a like you following the three act structure? At this point in your screenplay, you need this to happen. You need your entire no, no, no. It's, it's never prescriptive like okay, that. Good. No. So you'd say so. Say for example, we, uh, the first thing we do is that for the for the script writers, they write a, a short film, um, five to seven minutes, no dialogue. Right. or visual storytelling yeah. so 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 we show them lots of examples we have asked lots of questions see what they think about it talk about uh, approaches and little tricks and then and then we do have certain kind of screen grammar that we talk about and the screen grammar we show and we evidence how it works why it works and so students can feel like it actually it's it, it works for them then, then there's lots of drafts and iterative drafts and they all get kind of critiqued and so the student then is able to write whatever genre they want to, whatever they want to write about. And we do have those kind of parameters, but it's not, where's your turning point on page? No, you know, sure. Not, so is, is it something you look at retrospectively? Because there's, there's a really interesting sort of, there's a, a book I've read recently, by, I've written him down, where is he? John York. Oh yeah, Into the Woods. Yeah. yeah. Which is, I'm not, I, I say I've read it, I'm about halfway through it. It's one of the 15 books on my bedside it's good, table. It's good. Yeah, it's great. There's some really mm. interesting stuff in it. But um, he's, there's a bit in it which I thought was fascinating where uh, Charlie Kaufman, who did Eternal Sunshine Spotless Mind. Yes, which is one of my favourite films ever. Eternal Sunshine is wonderful. But, um, you on board with that film? I love that movie too. I've referenced it in my in my PhD. I've analysed it. And, yes, oh, yeah. did you? Yeah, 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 yeah. Is uh, it impenetrable? No, it's very clear. <laughs> <laughs> what was I going to say? Oh, yes. The, um, all these films are very clear. Yeah, yeah they are. But he's, he says, I don't believe in the 3X structure or the 5X structure. I think it's a little rubbish. I don't subscribe to any of these um, sort of constraints that the, um, the the classic screenwriting gurus have sort of imposed on it. Um, and then John York analyses being John Malkovich, which is held up as one of those, which is, it's weird. It's out there. It doesn't look like it just fits. It but was too says, weird for me. But it absolutely fits. But then That's it, the point. But is that he says, yeah. I didn't use it, but yeah. then it absolutely, but, but, beat but, for beat, it's right this in is, the threat. But this structure. is the myth of, of lots of creatives, isn't it? Is that, that nobody wants to say, I've grafted. Nobody wants to say in any sphere, you know, oh, I, I'm, I'm just, you know, you know, are oh, you amazing? That's really good. Oh yeah, I just, I just knocked it out. Oh yeah, yeah, just something I, you just know, fell out on a Wednesday yeah, yeah, afternoon. Yeah, I didn't spend fifty hours plus, you know, pulling my hair out doing that thing. Nobody wants to to admit that. So that whole kind of myth of I wrote the screenplay on a weekend or I cranked this out here or it was just a, you, you know, spontaneous. Bit. And that serves a lot of creative types it, really, it, really it well. It does, mm. it does because because process is dull and graft is dull 
and nobody kind of, you know, and, and that's kind of ingrained in the culture, isn't it? Yeah. In our entire culture, nobody wants to be the, the sad, dull, you know, dullard, the, the virginal teen <laughs> painting the miniatures in the bedroom, you know. It's okay uh, if you were if you were 12, yeah, but, it's fine. But, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, 13, 14. And then so, <laughs> so, 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 but that, that is, that is very potent. So yeah, if you look at Kaufman's films and even something like uh, Cynic Dolk in New York, mm. it absolutely has a very clear character arc in it. And that is very complex in lots of ways. Is that with Philip Seymour Hoffman? It is, it is. Yeah, yeah. And, oh, um, that made me sad. So I, I look at those films and analyze them in the same way. And the very clear points, certainly in terms of a character arc. And and it even adaptation, he even meets McKee and has he a does, conversation. Yeah. And, and and Brian Cox, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So so that is he, he's absolutely steeped in that culture. Oh, he totally. knows it, but it is there is a kind of. It felt like he was kind of taking a piss out of it or attempting to. Yeah, but but also quite kind of, I think affectionate as well. And I think there is an issue with all of these kind of how tos and you know let me tell you how to paint a watercolor or let me how whatever it is mm. is that it does absolutely sap anything. Of, of the spontaneity, of the creativity, of the of the individual um, aspect of being creative, it, it saps it and it makes it feel very kind of pedestrian. So there is there is the kind of slavish crowd who who absolutely cling to that kind of stuff yeah. to get them through, and then those that reject absolutely because it is it's not it's not fine art, you know. And I think finding the kind of the the, the middle area where. You acknowledge, I suppose that's what screenwriting is. It's kind of part craft, it's part uh, creativity, and it's finding that kind of balance where you, you're comfortable with both. And I think that that's why you get lots of people in the industry, in any industry, you know, rejecting wholesale any involvement in how tos or yeah. you know, create because because it, it it makes you seem naff. Yeah. And and just a and kind it kind of, of reduces it as well. Yeah. There is a there's an element that makes it sound. Oh, it's really simple. Here's a, here are five simple steps. Off is you this, go. Is this what Mark Como refers to as tabe and to slot B? Possibly. I mean, there's that element to it, but there's there's so many mm. bits of um, so many great films that feel like they're completely original or are sort of treading new ground in some way, but they do fit those old paradigms. Mm. And I, I, I do wonder if if they're if they're consciously fitting them or if it just turns out that way because that's what works for the story. And, well, and it's, is it like music theory where the music comes first and then you write music theory to explain why it is that that stuff works, mm. you know? So that, that that was a great revelation for me is that it, music theory was not there to irritate the hell out of music students. It was more there to explain what it was you would... It's a way of writing it down and it's kind of feels like the structure bibles maybe in the same sort of way that after the event more like you can you can analyze this and say look it's actually quite similar to that one over there even though they look completely different yeah structurally they've yeah. got these things in common like the bones or whatever well, it's like it's like comedy isn't it so if you look at the mechanics of of kind of um the rule of three or or kind of the, you know set up a payoff and of, of, of comedy sketches and, and gags and stuff you can see them everywhere in lots of different uh tonal variations you know from kind of mr bean to the office and but it's the same mechanics underlying mm. it and you go okay i can really see that now in, in operation and it, and on one level it, it can just totally make you feel kind of dispirited and it feels very kind of forced and contrived but at the same time it's those some of these things do work very well yeah and it, it depends how much you, you kind of cling to them i think is is, is the the anxiety so these feel to me like about one of the ideas that we talk about within creativity is the idea of constraints mm. and how a blank piece of paper can be a really terrifying thing. And it feels like these rules or these steps mm. are kind of reassuring constraints for people to say, actually, 
some constraints can be quite beneficial to focus you. Yeah, I mean, I think if, if I look at some of our briefs, a lot of our briefs have constraints on them. You can't have this, you can't have that. And I think that if I've, you know, when I've worked professionally as a screenwriter, you, you have loads of constraints on you. You can only have, you know, three speaking characters. You can't have, you know, certainly for TV, you know, all, every, all your, your guests are non-speaking extras, so they can't say anything. So you're writing scenes where there's supposed to be a conversation going on, but that character can't speak because we can't pay that character. So suddenly you've got these scenes where you're cutting out to a scene with two characters can speak and then you cut back to the scene with two other characters, but it's the person over here talking and that person's just kind of nodding because we can't afford to pay nodding person, <laughs> you know? And, and so those kind That's of parameters- those I, didn't, I didn't know it worked like that. Yeah, so those parameters work and they, they can be quite interesting and amusing. And I think that, um, but I think that t to me, it, what's really important is all this stuff is, is basically, it's there for you to hopefully facilitate or help you get to a point where you've got a process because everyone's process is slightly different and, and, and once you've kind of hopefully worked out your process then that is your way through and to kind of navigate the next project and the next project so so finding your process and I think that's something that we try and Phil what's your process well it, it's very different for, for different projects but in terms of of um because you know I, I have sketchbooks I have sometimes I, I, I record ideas or kind of speak and then I'll write them down or I have kind of doodles or whatever. But I, I'm um, I'm a dyslex I'm dyslexic. I've got ADHD and so I kind of so I'm quite visual. So I kind of write lots of things down and color code stuff. So if I'm writing a screenplay, everything's color coded. So every character will have their own color, uh, and that way. So if I'm writing a feature film, that I might write a treatment that's like ten to twenty pages. Every paragraph will be a different color code so I can navigate who's, so if I want to isolate, you know, Freddy's story, I've never written about Freddy, but let's talk about Freddy for now. Yeah. And Freddy's story, I can see Freddy's story in isolation. Is he a cop on the edge? He's, <laughs> he, he is. Right, yes. let's say yes. <laughs> How did you know? <laughs> Seen straight through, I know exactly what's gonna happen next. <laughs> My process is, isn't working. <laughs> yeah, so so I think that that you know right, having we'll ha ha having, having a process, I suppose, is is the is the thing that then gets you into a groove and gets and builds your confidence. How important do you think the writing in a screenplay is? You're talking about having colours for characters and all that kind of stuff, and and like writing a screenplay by not writing really, by not actually putting words down and like the structure and the story and all that kind of stuff, but the actual words that appear on a, you know, in your 12 point courier, how important is that stuff, do you think? Dep depends how, how, what you mean as important. I mean, I like, I get into the point where I like a, a script, a, there's an aesthetic t to a script. So I will, you know, look at my, the, the words I'm using. I will look at the, 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 how, you know, we don't ever, I don't ever have uh, danglers or Klingons. So I don't ever have a word dangling on a line on its own, that kind of thing. So there's an aesthetic to, to a screenplay that, yeah. that I, I quite- You're talking about widows and orphans, don't Yes, he is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Excellent. What did you call them? Danglers and Klingons? Yeah, danglers and Klingons. Right on. Yeah, so, so <laughs> those. And um, and then, then yes, you can get absorbed by the prose, but sometimes I, I, I've got very kind of short patience with good prose and not really strong screen screenwriting. Um, because it's, it, I think it's more akin. Screenwriting is more akin to kind of music and and visual storytelling and 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 drawing than it is to prose. It's not. Yeah. It's not. You know. What are the parallels with music? Well, it's it's a temporal art form, isn't it? So a page is a minute. So when you when you write re, read a screenplay, you have to read it to time. Otherwise, what are you doing? So 
if say, say if you've got a 90 page screenplay yeah so if i'm reading a screenplay and i used to be a reader a professional reader yeah you put your stopwatch on 90 minutes and you've got to read that screenplay in 90 minutes because if you don't you've got no idea how it's going to play as a film you're reading it as prose and it's not prose it's a, it's a film so you've got to understand the rhythm the pacing oh, so so you're reading it page 10 you're 10 minutes in and, and and you're just skim reading sometimes yeah but you've got to then so sit you back know, and go it's really boring for 30 minutes and you know that's a fact because at 30 minutes in or a page or for 30 pages you were bored you know witless uh, and the the ending's too rushed so all those kind of rhythm and pacing things are really important and because it's a page per minute. That's fascinating. Yeah. So that's an actual, that's that's just accepted technique. That I don't know if it's accepted technique. That's something that I do impress on all my students. Yeah, that, that's really yeah, great though. Yeah. Um, it's not, you know, a novel where you can put it down and go and then come back and, and pick up. And, yeah, and right. time has stopped actually for that, for that yeah. point, isn't it? It doesn't stop for a screenplay. So I was thinking about, I was thinking about manuals and formulas and all that kind of stuff. And I, I loved, I loved it when I heard about a book called Save the Cat. Do you know? That oh yeah, one? Blake Snyder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, some good stuff in there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I, haven't, I haven't read it. All right. But okay. I just love because <laughs> I'm lazy. But I just love the idea yeah. that that just in the name of the book, yeah, it sort of explains. You can look at every film, yeah, where you're supposed to like the protagonist, yeah, and see a moment where he literally or metaphorically yeah. saves a cat. Yeah. It's like oh my god, that's yeah, that's like a beautiful little bit of little nugget of knowledge. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, you see that all, all, all there's, there's lots of devices that are used in, in, in stories for, for characters like, you know, a mishap happens to them, you know, something, you, you know, I think in, um, in parts of the Caribbean, I think that the character of Will Turner, when he comes into the big house, he looks at a, man, at a candlestick and he, he touches it and it snaps mm. and then he kind of he throws it away. And straight away, it's it's a sneaky little into yeah. oh I now I yeah. feel sympathy. Oh, for, we like so, him. so it's either sympathy, empathy, or 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 yeah, recognizing some kind of private moments. You, that, you're also telling the audience that he's not at ease in that environment. Yeah, yeah. Which is is a really quick shorthand yeah. for that sort of stuff. Yeah. So it's, going back to the manuals, just maybe wrapping up on the manuals. Are there any that you'd recommend and say right, this is absolutely the, yes, the there's best one, one by uh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, obviously, obviously Phil your Matthews. PhD. I think that um, I'm very wary of recommending any of them because I think that that there are areas and elements in in lots of them. I think that some that have have, have um, I've lost a word, um, resonated mm -hmm. for a long time. I think there's one by Lagos Egri, or Lagos Egri, um, which is called The Art of Dramatic Writing, which is, um, he was a kind of dramatist in the 1950s and it's a kind of, it keeps getting reprinted, but that's quite a nice book. And he talks about story in terms of, and films more in theatre really, but you can, you can put it towards uh, cinema about the premise of a story. So the premise is effectively a character goes through a story and a narrative to either uh, prove a premise or to debunk a premise. Right. So a character starts with a, w one defining view of something, you know, and they get changed through the narrative and the story and they they, they change their opinion on something. So, so you That's look- back to arcs again. Yeah, it, it is, it is. But whereas the arc is about ch choices and what motivates a character, an arc is about revealing motivation. A premise is more about Arguing, uh, arguing a premise to somebody and saying, "Well, look, you know, the, there's these two sides to an argument. The character will explore them, and the the final premise of the story will be in support of one premise or the other. I suppose it does, yeah, go through. It does go through the character, and it relates to theme as well. But so that is an interesting book. 
Um, there's lots of good interesting books. Just read them all. Mm. Read them all. Read them all. Um, <laughs> because then I think only by reading lots of them, you start to see uh, it's the same thing, just reworded. Yeah, or, he, that guy's saying the same as that guy. Yeah, yeah. And here's a new idea. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so didn't you write something, didn't you write quite a lot on kind of the romantic... Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, my the genre that I, I I was looking at and exploring was romance. Yeah, so love stories. Yeah, just going back to your twelve-year-old yeah. self. Yes, yes, yes. Well, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's time it's time to move away from the twelve-year-old self. So I'm I'm learning about love and reading about it, and I'm one day I hope to to make forays into that into that world. Uh, but but let's take let's let's yeah, let's okay. one step at a time. No, I like. Um, I'm only 47. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I was I was just going to say because you you don't you know you don't strike me as a romantic movies kind of guy. Have you got a massive? But it depends soft what you, it depends for... what you think about romantic oh, movies. Yeah, of I, mean, of I mean, I mean, I think if you look at the kind of if you're thinking about uh, you know I haven't got Jennifer Aniston's back catalogue in alphabetical order on on my shelf. I'm not you're not that those kind of rom coms. More about love stories, which are a more kind of complex and generally. Not always, but they can end tragically as well as as positively. But yeah, I, I do like a, a love story. Yeah, and what I think. Your favorite? That, well, I think if you look at even going back to kind of the, the sci-fi references and everything, you know, Empire Strikes Back is a love story. You know, Superman the movie is a love story, as is Superman two. You know, the the secondary story and all those are love stories, and most of the kind of quests are the secondary story is a love story. So the love story is pervasive and kind of in in most narratives. So that I would, if you're going to talk about which. I think when people talk about the manuals and the quest as being the dominant story, the monomyth, it's it's actually that the romance is is the is the um, preeminent story, bar none. It's a pretty standard human thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's got a- just connection. It doesn't have to be romantic love. It's just a connection with somebody. So it can be platonic or whatever. But yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I saw you'd written something about the happy ending, happily ever after right. trope. Okay, yes. Um, is that a is that another thing that is, um, you know, that is that a structural thing where we're sort of conditions to expect the happy ending? Yeah, I mean, that was it. That was in relation to um, I, there was a, a conference I went to, which was was the America. It was about kind of more about the Mills and Boom, the kind of American um, and, yeah, okay. and English kind of romance literary genre, which is massive. Apparently, I, I can't remember the stats, but it's something like literary romance outsells all other genres by about forty percent. Wow. combined so you know fiction faction everything romance dominates so but so I, so it was, a, it was a paper at one at a conference about romance the romance literary romance world and one of their kind of tenets is in american kind of romance literature is you must have a happy ending mm. but again i think that's back to culturally in america uh marriage all those kind of things are, are a part of the kind of culturally ingrained. So happily ever after has to be kind of um, consummated with marriage and commitment and all the rest of it. Right. And I think that at that stage that we were moving from happily ever after to happy for now, but still happy. <laughs> and they weren't classing uh, um, a romance that didn't ha- end happily as, as legitimately a romance. But that's when you get into kind of nuance of, 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 of that was romance literature. Um, oh, that stuff's interesting. I wonder where, I wonder where the millennial, where we are with the millennial kind of. Uh, well, happy for now is 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 now. is now more of a compromise on that. So so you can be happy and you can pull out and things could go. Is that where we are shape. with normal people? Happy for now. I guess it is. Yeah. yeah. Did you, have you seen normal people? I haven't. No. 
Oh, it's lovely. Yeah. Let, let's not bang on about it, but no. it's, I mean, it's, yeah, recommend it. Okay. okay. It's great. But I mean, I, I've seen it sort of, you know, the book described as, you know, it's very classic for millennial, you know, right. first yeah. millennial. Oh, it's very zeitgeisty, isn't it? Yeah, okay. very zeitgeisty. Yeah. Okay. I wonder. Yeah. I wonder if you can. I wonder if you can plot the zeitgeist through romantic movie. The, the demands for the endings of romantic movies. Well, I think I think that there are kind of you can see certain films that have, have kind of continued and resonated. Things like Five Hundred Days of Summer was a kind of, you know, a compromise of a happy ending and also not a happy ending. So well, yeah, he ends up with Autumn. Yes, which is the happy ending. Which is a lovely little pun. Yeah, yeah. But, but actually most people are really miffed by that because that character turns up like three minutes before the end and we haven't yeah. had time to engage at all. It's also one like of those non-linear narratives, which is because uh, it jumps around all over the place. Yeah. Whereas that towards the end, when it gets to the hard bit, it's linear again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a bit yeah. cheaty. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Let's talk about those. Is that, do, do the structures cover that? Or was that a... Uh, non-linear narratives, re- what we tend to say about kind of portmanteau and uh, non-linear and all those kind oh, of narratives. Portmanteau? It's a kind of an amalgamation of, of multiple different collection stories. Of. Collection of. Right. Um, is that, interestingly, the character arc is linear all the way through those films. Okay. So even if you have a non-linear, multiple kind of perspective and multiple time frame story, uh, the arc is absolutely That's fascinating. I've not really because, thought about because that. Because you've got to think about the audience engagement with it. It's still temporal and still linear your, mm. your engagement with that narrative is linear because but but also the way that you you intellectualize it and you and you absorb it and you kind of emotionally respond to it is linear so i think that we what we tend to say if if students are writing those kind of films is to work out what the story is in a linear way and then do what you like with the, the presentation cut it up and put yeah. it yeah but but keep hold of what the arc is because that's emotionally how an audience is responding to it and they'll they'll you need those pointers or markers so like eternal sunshine and spotless mind mm. is the, the arc is is very clear in terms of where, where the, the points are and they they come as they would do traditionally in a, in a linear narrative it's very flashbacky isn't it but i guess the the, the point is the they're meeting each other all over again and that's the bit yeah i, I don't want to be with her first choice i do want to be with her in the dream uh second choice that's the second art and then the third one is in reality even though life is crap and i'm listening to this tape where i'm slagging you off i still want to be with you so he's kind of moved from don't want you to deciding in this the, the safe space of the unconscious that he, do, he does want to yeah. and now we're in reality and and i do want you absolutely three arc yeah choices i thought the genius of that film was that it took a love story and treated it like a thriller because it was suddenly the thing in jeopardy was their relationship yeah. and it was beyond their control someone else was destroying it yeah that's amazing yeah how did he come up with that but you're right though it's still yeah. structurally yeah, it's, yeah. it's the same as yeah it's quite traditional yeah 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 i didn't think about that as, as a thriller elements yeah it's wicked yeah, right. isn't it? i love that film yeah and and they keep track visually because of because of all the hair color changes. So that's the way that they they keep. Oh, you, have, uh, do yeah. they? Yeah. I need to watch it again. Yeah. Clementine. Yeah, Ugh, I love her. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. So a hair, hair changes. Oh, we're in the orange. St- oh, <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, the blue yeah, yeah. time frame. Do we need to take a break? You must be knacked. Yeah. What time is it? Been talking solidly for a while. Do you need to go? Uh, in about five minutes. Yeah. So have you got anything? Okay. Well, let's wrap it up. I kind of feel like we've skirted around it a bit. Let's do. Let's finish on Star Wars. Okay. Um, from an analytical... <laughs> I you are going to say something really serious then. Yeah, yeah. Uh, did you... I am. I know. <laughs> <laughs> from a screenwriting analytical point of view, how, I mean, do you, do, you, do you look at them in that way? I don't really... Mm-hmm. In the first three, the, the original trilogy, I, I have not really looked at and analysed in a screenwriting kind of way. The last three, 
absolutely differently because they, they, they seem like they had that to do where the first time around you were sort of, okay, just go with it. Whereas the Force Awakens is basically a rehash. Last Jedi does something different and the final one, I don't know what it does. It's interesting you've not even mentioned the prequels. And the, uh, <laughs> I know. So, what so I, prequels? Exactly. Well, I, I, f- I feel the same pretty much about the sequels. Um, okay. I think that as I got excited with the energy of the uh, commandeering, the, the Falcon and flying through the, the, the kind of the um, carcasses of the of the Star Destroyer. Oh, this is good. And yeah. that had some energy I and some... Ca- and then that's it. Right. I, I can't... I, there was not another moment in that film that I, I would... If it all burnt and went away, there's there's nothing of it that's original. Even Chiri, we're home. You didn't have the hairs on the back of your neck stand up when they when Harrison Ford walks back into the Vulcan. No, no, no. It, it felt really staged, and okay. I think that 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 to me that was like okay, generic, uh, cheap tentacle alien. Yeah, oh, that in, was in dreadful. a corridor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That had no. That was from a different film. You know, then start. We, now we have to take do hyperspace. We can't do hyperspace, hyperspace in space anymore. It has to be hyperspace from a hangar, hyperspace, jumping hyperspace, like in the last, you know, hyperspace into atmosphere, y- yep. you know. Agreed, uh, utter nonsense. All, so, so, so that's, anyway. But um, yeah, I just didn't find, and Last Jedi, I think was, I just thought was dreadful. That, that had no story whatsoever, no character arc, no no development to the point where you could start, you could end Force Awakens and start watching the last one, whatever it was called, the Rise of the Jedi. And, and nothing had changed. Nobody had changed. Well, that, but isn't that because um, JJ and Ryan Johnson just had no, completely no, no, but, different ideas? Yeah, but even even if that was the case, that there was not enough of a move made in Last Jedi for you to go, wow. Really, what should have happened is is that when um, Kylo put his hand out and says, you know, join me, she said yes. Mm-hmm. And then they attack the rebels and get rid of them. Now where are we going? But nothing really changed. Is that while they're waiting for the rebels to run out of petrol? Oh, that was that was that was basically it was a filler episode for it was a filler episode of something like you know Babylon Five or something. That's what that that's what that was. Well, the, the, the whole the, the idea that Star Destroyers run on like fossil fuels is insane. That made me a bit angry. But so it, but it's just just, just the incompetence of the first order, last order, first order. Well, that, yeah. Well, that that's another thing, isn't it? There, there's no potency of, of any of, of of the villains. So like in in Star Wars and Empire. You know, Vader's killing off people left, right, and centre, and mm. you're terrified. They're of Vader. destroying planets. Yeah, well, but they're destroying whole planets. Yet they've got to wait for petrol to run out. But but there was for half a film. But they're all in, they're all incompetent in like you know, Hooks was just this is what I wanted. Hooks has got no no sense of dread or threat. Neither is no, Kylo it's Ren. Comedy, isn't it? Yeah, it's all comedy, and even with Ed Edmondson in there as well. So that really kind of uh, you know upped <laughs> up the comedy. But it, but you know, in the in the original ones, you are terrified of Vader. I remember in the local toy shop. Vader was proper scary. In yeah. Wigan, he used to. They used to. You know, when he used to, Vader used to turn up to sh- shops and do signings and give out free figures. Yeah, yeah. So I remember remember going to see Boba Fett once, and also Darth Vader, and queuing up for Darth Vader. It was just a line of parents with kids crying. <laughs> <laughs> because here's this six foot eight guy going oh, it's absolutely terrifying and all absolutely you've done is right. see him crush people's windpipes you know you're absolutely terrified and i think there was none of that in in the in the sequels at all there was no threat there was there wasn't enough charisma or energy they desperately tried it with poe dameron but like the toy sales say it all the mm. toy sales absolutely tanked every one of them because they thought, oh, you know, he's going to be cool. It's going to be, but there was, there's no energy. There's no story, no character, no development of the character. So I think that, that they don't work. I mean, I enjoyed the last, the Rise of Skywalker as a pantomime. When I first saw it, I thought, oh, this is all right. 
It's silly. It's got energy. It's utterly ludicrous, though, bringing the emperor back, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah, it's totally. But that, but that, that absolutely smacks of what? The, what are we going to do? It, it was total desperation, and I think that that they didn't know what they were doing with it. You know, if you start to unpick the logic of it, it makes no sense whatsoever. Why have you no. got I mean, an entire I'm... civilization and fleet under ice? Yeah, and they've all, but they're, they're all, all nice and like clean. Staffed by ten thousand zombies each. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It didn't make any sense no, at all. Yeah. Excellent. That was exactly what I was after. Just Thanks quickly, Phil. <laughs> favourite screen monster of all time? Um, favourite screen monster? The Rancor. Oh, yeah, the Rancor. Rancor. Yeah, that's pretty the good. Gorilla Potato. The Rancor is pretty good. Gorilla Potato. It is. It's a potato yeah. gorilla. I think that's what they actually call it. Gorilla okay. Potato. Yeah, it's beautiful. There you go. Phil Originality. Phil Tipping. Taking two things that already exist, putting them together. Gorillas and potatoes. Yeah. Who thought that? <laughs> Thanks, Brilliant. mate. Thank you so much. Okay, Phil. thank you. Fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> So loads of thanks to uh, Dr. Phil Matthews for that uh, chat. Really awesome of him to uh, to let us pick his brains for uh, for a couple of hours. Yeah, it was great, wasn't it? it? It was a couple of hours, and it went really quickly. And there was we packed an awful lot in. There's an yeah. awful lot would, that would cut as well because it was yeah. just really a very dense chat. Great stuff. And as you can see, we did fail to talk about Shaun of the Dead, which is mm. very annoying. But never mind. Uh, Phil uh, refers to his PhD, um, which is called "It Must Be Love." an exploration of the character arc model in screenwriting, practice and theory. And I think you can get that at the Bournemouth website. Actually, yeah, you, we'll put a link to it in the details of this podcast. Yeah. Uh, Phil also co-wrote a film, a short film, which was uh, nominated for a BAFTA award. Uh, which is another thing we completely failed to discuss. Oh, don't highlight our incompetence, Simon. Mm, our complete and total Anyway, the film is called Soft. Um, and it's uh, really good terrifying yeah. absolutely terrifying it reminded me a lot of Eden Lake which is another film that terrified me yeah it's really really sort of nasty and atmospheric and um, I don't know it's very tense a really really interesting exercise in tension in what is it 12 minutes long yeah crazy yeah absolutely super cool. crazy so we'll put a link to that in the uh, yeah. in the notes of the podcast as well so thanks to Phil that was brilliant also thanks to uh, Louise Jordan who provides the our wicked little sort of folksy stings our, our folky stings about Neil and Simon being a couple of twats yeah which kind of I think they're our, they're kind of our inner critic yeah they are definitely our inner they're critic nice, I like them. Uh, they're really great she did such a great job I basically said to her uh, that I really liked the brave, 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 brave Sir Robin. Yes. Uh, a character from um, uh, Pon- Monty Python's Holy, yeah. Holy Grail. And I wrote a couple of little lines and she sort of, she managed to mash those two together yeah, really beautifully. Yeah, it's great. I, I really love them. So thank you, Louise. Uh, yeah, uh, top work. Yeah, really, really, really top work. Neil and Simon, Neil and Simon, what a pair of twats. Riding on the coattails of people who have talent. They are not afraid to look like a desperate double act. Neil and Simon, Neil and Simon, what a pair of twats. Um, so that wraps it up for today. You can get us at uh, soonpod.com. Yep, at soonpod on Twitter. Or at soonpodpics on Instagram. Um, and you can email us as well. What's that? Is it hello at soonpod? Hello at soonpod.com. Marvellous. And, and we'll uh, catch up with you next time. We'll be back next time. Yes. For another conversation. <laughs> with another creative.